You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. We all have different ways of measuring what's most important. Everyone in this room has a different way of measuring what is truly important. Sometimes my way of doing that looks different than someone else's way. 
leading us to different conclusions about what is important. Uh, just to give you an example of this, I have two kids, one is five and one is seven, and I took them to a bowling alley back home uh, called Zotos. It's one of those places that has an attached arcade where you can spend countless amounts of money for tickets. And you might find yourself spending $20, $30 and get five tickets by which you can exchange it for some plastic trinkets. I got sucked into the trap and... At the end of that afternoon, my kids come up to me, they had spent all of my money, and to show for it, they had a little stream of tickets that they wanted to exchange. We went up to the ticket counter, and I looked at all that was available for their tickets, and it was pencils, and plastic spiders, and just nonsense. And I had to tell, my, my son Jude looks at me, and he's, oh, I want that monster truck. And I said, well, that's going to cost you 50 million tickets. I'm sorry you don't have that. And then he, he looks, he picks out one or two things, and then both him, Jude, and my daughter, Abby, eventually settle on some Jolly Ranchers. They pick out three Jolly Ranchers. And they are absolutely beaming over this. I am freaking out because as they're picking out the Jolly Ranchers, I'm crunching all the numbers. And I realized, according to the amount of tickets they, they, they uh, redeemed, and the money I gave them to play those video games, each of those Jolly Ranchers cost me $2. And so I'm over here like, I just got ripped off, but my kids are like, I got paid in candy to play video games, living the dream. We all have different ways of measuring what's important. And when I first opened this text that, uh, that I was assigned from Mark chapter 14, the first question that popped out to me was, how do we measure what is most important in life? Especially when life is urgent, when life is hasty, when life is troubling, and when life is scary. The text, is, uh, as was just read for us, opens up with that kind of environment, right? It was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and here's a few uh, dudes, the chief priests and scribes, who are seeking to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They were looking for a secret time, not during the feast, because that's when all the people are going to be around, and we want to do it by stealth, or we will incite a riot. And so already out the gate, as we read uh, uh, Mark chapter 14, there is this sense of urgency, Unle the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we got to get through this. There's a sense of scariness and fear, the Passover, We're, we want to we uh, apprehend this troublemaker Jesus. There's trouble with the chief priests. The story ends, or it opens, I should say, with a sense of urgency, a sense of fear, a sense of trouble which is not too unlike some of our lives. You might have pressed pause on your week here in Stockton to come to church, but no one in here, I don't think, is under the illusion that, that, that life just stops. After this, you go back into your Monday, and you face not much different situation than the Jewish people and the disciples in the first century. Life is urgent, life is scary, Life is troubling. And the question is, in the midst of that, when we're facing crises, when life is urgent and scary and troubling, how do we measure what is most important? And I think this text gives us two case studies. I want to give you the first one. This woman uh, 
who is at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. I'm just going to read this passage again. This is verse 3 through 9. As Jesus was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 uh, denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you but whenever you want, and you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay, a couple things, just to give us a, a little bit of a map forward. Uh, Mark is pretty much in a hurry as he's telling the story. This is a very quick gospel, so he leaves out a lot of details, right? A lot of names, a lot of people. Uh, John, in his gospel, because this story is told in almost every single gospel, highlights it and tells us that this is Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but Mary, uh, the sister of Martha. Uh, this thing that she's got around her neck, this nard, pure nard. Uh, I'm, I live about 12 miles from 20 miles from Oxnard, and the nickname for Oxnard, the city, is Nard. So the elders at that church are like, pure Nard is our city. This is awesome. Wrong. Pure Nard, uh, if you could think of it this way, it was basically an, a very rare essential oil. It was one that was used for aromatic purposes for centuries, for medicine, for religious ceremonies across a wide territory from India to Europe. The key point I want you to see here in the text is that it was very costly. The text tells us it was about 300 denarii. I just want to make that concrete for you. That was about a year's worth of wages. And the reason she's wearing it around her neck is because it was probably her life savings. This was probably everything that she owned. This was her financial security. This was her get-out-of-trouble car. This is when everything hits the fan, like, this is what's going to get me out. This is what I'm going to retire on. And it's dangling from her neck. And she takes that, a year's worth of wages, everything she's ever had, ever owned, ever put her security in, and she smashes it over the head. No, not over the head of Jesus. She breaks it. <laughs> Just want to see if you're listening. And she pours it over the head of Jesus Christ. Very costly. I want to stop right there. Mary, if we could say, how does, what's one measure of what's most important? We could say this. Mary, even though she has some things of value, even though she probably also faces the urgent, the scary, the troubling, still rearranges her entire life around Jesus. Even the things of most value, it's not even a question to her. In fact, it's so scandalous that the people in the room, which we'll get to in a few seconds, are questioning that. How can you do that? We could have given all of that money to the poor. I just love Jesus. He basically says, shut up. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. I love how Jesus does this. He's always going to bat for people who are marginalized and ostracized, who are hurting who want more of Jesus at any cost. He's always going to bat for people like that. 
I want to say that because I wonder if there might be some people in this room today who this is all you could do to get out of bed this morning and roll up into church. You're facing terminal illness. You're facing a loss in your family, financial ills. Your life is crumbling right now. It might not look like it because you rolled into church with a smile on your face, but inside things are crumbling. And you seriously debated, oh, should, I, should I get out of bed today? I, oh, I don't want to face, I don't, I don't want to do that. I just sing for a bit and then hear some dude from somewhere preach a sermon. And it was all you could do to roll out of bed. Maybe you're facing so much this morning, so much this week, maybe so much in your life. You're like, is this even going to do anything? And the voices in your head, whether it's the devil or your own thoughts telling you, this isn't worthwhile. God isn't going to change you. There's nothing left for you. You might as well pull yourself up by the bootstraps and try harder. And I want you to hear the voice of Jesus Christ today who says not just to that woman, not just to Mary thousands of years ago, but to you. You have done a beautiful thing. Leave her alone. Leave him alone. You showed up. You did what you could. You have done a beautiful thing. Mary rearranges her life around Jesus Christ. Now I want to give you the second case study. Um, I want to start with our text in Mark chapter 14, verse 10 through 11. It says, then Judas Iscariot, famous name there, who was one of the 12 disciples, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when he heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, notice this is directly after this extravagant outpouring of worship from this woman to Jesus. He's offended, stuck up. What you might not know, because Mark tends to skip over some of the details, because he's got his own, uh, he's got kind of an agenda. He just wants to get straight to the death and resurrection. He's not super interested in the details, which is a good thing in the story that he's telling. But he's basically like, ah, the names aren't that important, and the details aren't that important. I want to get you to the main point. doesn't matter who did this, who said this. But then you've got like the Apostle John, who's like, I'll hold my drink. I'll tell you who it was. Listen to John chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. Who is the guy complaining about Mary's extravagant worship? Listen to this. But Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Rah, 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 rah. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas doesn't care about the marginalized and the poor. He doesn't care about the gospel or Jesus' plan in the world. He's worried about his, his return on investment of his thievery going down. He's like, this is more cash I could have pilfered, and she's taking it to waste on Jesus. What I want you to see in the case study of Jesus, uh, excuse me, Judas is that while Mary rearranges everything in her life and her agenda around Jesus, Judas rearranges Jesus around his life. The answer to the question we started with, how do we measure what is most important is not too difficult. What's important in our life is not what you say is most important. What, you, so what is important in your life is not even what you might think is most important. 
What's important in our life is what we actually make the most room for. It's what you simply can't do without. Mary could not do without a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. It was of so much value to this woman that she was willing to smash the alabaster jar of her life savings. Lest that get in the way. Judas seems to rearrange Jesus around his pre-existing agenda. Mary couldn't do without Jesus, and so she pours out all she saved. You know what's awesome about this story is that in Jewish tradition, kings were often anointed for service. Kings were anointed for service, meaning someone would anoint them with oil and commission them to be kings. And so this is basically what Mary is doing. She sees before, uh, she sees at this point in the story, Jesus is the king that God has sent. And she extravagantly proclaims and declares that. But Jesus actually takes it even deeper by saying, she's not just anointing me as king, she's, she's proclaiming my death. She's anointing my body for burial. Now, I don't, I don't know if Mary had that wherewithal like Jesus did to know that that's exactly what she was doing. Maybe she was, maybe she didn't. But what's interesting to me is that Jesus sees it in her faith. He, in other words, sees Mary as looking at him saying, not just, you're not just a good king. I don't just like the idea of you as king. I believe in everything that you're about to do. That's convicting to me because I often love the idea of Jesus. I love all the things that he says. I love the stories of his miracles. I like the idea of him being king in my life until he starts to touch my stuff. I like the idea of Jesus being Lord of my life until he starts rearranging the stuff in my life. And then I get a little defensive. The salient point here is that Mary, before anything happens in her life, seemingly, or at some point in her life, she says, I trust you, not just the idea of you, but everything that you're going to do. I believe in you. Judas, on the other flip side, was disappointed in Jesus. He was so disappointed in Jesus, it almost seemed to drive him to keep everything that he could. Listen, Judas wanted a lot of things that I want and some of us want. He wants money. He wanted power. He probably is a good uh, Jewish guy in the first century, wanted to stop being kicked around by Rome and the man and the powers that be. And Jesus was his ticket out of that. When I look at Judas, I know he's like the worst person in the world in some of our minds, but to be honest, there's times where I sympathize. I also get, have gotten kicked around. Maybe you have too. I read this article on Marvel villains, and it was, amen. It's my first amen of the day right there. And it was, it was, uh, <laughs> It was placing them in order of belovedness. In other words, like, who are the villains that the population love the most? And the ones at the top tended to be villains who were fighting for something that we all fight for. In other words, they were bad, but you could kind of empathize with their struggle. Judas is like that. He just wants to stop being kicked around. He wants a break. He wants to know that it's going to be okay. 
He wants a little bit of power. He wants a little money. Yes, but who doesn't? The problem with Judas is that Jesus was his ticket out of all of that stuff. Jesus was a means to an end. And Jesus, because of his great love for Judas and the human population, continued to challenge the control freak within him. And other disciples like Peter, even though it was a struggle, they eventually got it. But Judas could not handle that kind of a Messiah. A Messiah that asked for all control and all surrender. And eventually, he would exchange Jesus for 30 shekels of silver, which is about the equivalent today of about 200 bucks. Or four months of wages. I want to bring this up to peel away the usual defense mechanism that I often have. Maybe some of you have, I don't know. When we think of villains, you know, just like the big ones, Benedict Arnold, and Judas, and that trigger in our mind that distances us from them because we could never be like them. I'm so glad I'm not like Judas. I would never betray Jesus. Well, let me ask you a question. Would you ever allow your disappointment to chip away at your trust in Jesus? Isn't that all that really happened at the beginning with Judas Iscariot? Certainly it took him down a slippery slope and an unavoidable seemingly event in his life, but didn't it start with just disappointed dreams? Before you know it, that disappointment starts to chip away at your heart and your faith And you find yourself waking up and arriving at church and going through all the religious motions. You're a Christian in name, but you are easily making room for everything else in your life except Christ. And you have rearranged Jesus around your life. Here's what I think this story teaches me. It teaches me that I am more like Judas than I think. We are more like Judas than we thought. We don't always choose rightly. See, like uh, like Judas, you can be in the presence of Jesus Christ for three years. He was one of the 12 disciples. You can be in the home of Jesus Christ, in the presence of Jesus for three years, and completely miss him. You can watch his miracles and hear his sermons and study his actions and chat about him and with him and completely miss him. How is that possible? Look at Judas, the case study. Judas seemed to already go into this thing with a pre-existing agenda. I have an agenda. I have a life that I want to build. And Jesus, you are my ticket to that life. Look at Mary. I'll give up anything for you to rearrange my life. I trust you. While Judas comes in with a pre-existing agenda, Jesus bids us all to come and die. He's not, liter- you know, he's not necessarily literally calling us to die. Of course, that's true in all, all over the world. But for us, it means at least that we're to die to our pre-existing agenda. That's his route to freedom. Die to your agenda and take on mine. Take on my yoke and follow me and I will teach you what an abundant life looks like. I'll teach you what an eternal life looks like. But first you gotta die. You gotta die to the list of things that you were hoping to control. 
the things that you don't want to let go, the things that you don't want to surrender. And Jesus is often great in the minds of a lot of people. You'd be probably hard-pressed in, uh, in most of this area of the country or the state to find somebody who doesn't like good things about Jesus. Jesus is a likable guy until he's inconvenient. And he's always inconvenient because if you let him get too close to you, he'll start to challenge the things that you didn't want to give up. And he knows that if he challenges the things that you don't want to give up, you will have a better life in Christ. You don't know it at the time because you're stuck at Zoto's bowling alley going, $2 for a Jolly Rancher? When Jesus is trying to get you to see, I can't believe I get to get paid in candy to play video games. Sometimes we don't see it when we're stuck in the urgency and the mess and the trials and the trouble, but Jesus knows. And so he challenges, come and die. Die to your life and come with me. I'll show you how life is meant to be spent. Until that, we struggle with what's truly important in our lives. Our career. Our education. Our family. Our retirement savings. We ask those questions. What if these things don't end up the way that we envisioned? And when they don't end up the way they envisioned, can I get an amen from somebody? We maybe start to doubt Jesus. Like, do you really have the best in mind for me? I'm not making the money that I thought I was making. My family is falling apart. The family was my dream. And you have a miscarriage. Or you can't have kids at all. Career was everything you got into the world to do, and then you can't even break through a particular ceiling, and you start to question God, and little by little, the doubts begin to chip away at your faith in Christ. You don't know what he's doing, you can't explain it, and so you take a step back. And I know this is hard, because we all want the best for our lives. And because it's hard, that's why, at this point in my life, that's why I'm convinced Paul prayed this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3, he just got done for almost three chapters giving doctrine and teaching and logical argument. And at the end of chapter 3, he stops trying to convince people and he just gets on his knees and starts praying. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory and power by his spirit, he would grant you to be strengthened with power by his spirit in your inner being, listen to this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He stops arguing with the church and he gets on his knees and just prays that God would take up space in people's hearts. You know what's weird about that prayer is he's speaking to Christians. Jesus is already in my heart, as my Sunday school teacher used to tell me. Why is Paul praying that Christ would then dwell in my heart? This is why I think he's doing that. I think he's, not, I, I think he's praying for a complete occupation of a believer's heart. I think the problem is we have a lot of different rooms in our lives, in our hearts, in our souls, and some of them are more convenient to give to Jesus. Hey, Lord... You can have this section over here. I don't even really care about that room. That's just where I put my musty clothes. You can have that one. But my finances? Hey, Lord, you can have my time. I've got some time on Sunday. You can have that. Take it away. But my marriage? 
hey, Lord, this room over here, I don't even use that room. That's like the weird guest room that nobody uses because it stinks. You can have that one. Spend the night. But my addiction, better back off. I think Paul is praying, may Christ dwell in every room. May he completely occupy and take up, that original word there is to take up residence, to dwell, the whole space. See, Judas likely didn't just wake up one day wanting to hand Jesus over out of a pure hostility. It was probably a slow roll downhill that started with disappointment and disillusionment and held over rooms. And it probably started like this, if I can paraphrase it. You can have this room, Jesus. But that one is mine. What's that room for you? What's the room you've got under lock and key? The good news of this story, I think, is that Jesus invites us into what really matters. Even though we're, we might be arguing, even in our own minds and with ourselves about what's really important, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, invites us into what's truly important. Listen to verse 6 through 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. She gets it. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You'll always have the poor with you, and whenever, uh, whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. I want you to remember that line. You will not always have me. What was Jesus trying to impress into those disciples' hearts? What really matters is what you do with, Je- is what you do with Jesus in this life. What you do and how you respond to Jesus right now. Listen, the Bible from the very beginning to the very end tells a story about God. It says, number one, at least this, there is a God and you were made for him. John, uh, Acts chapter 17 says this, Paul as he's preaching says that God created humanity and put them all over the earth in these uh, boundaries in order that they would seek after God in hopes of finding him because in God we live and move and have our existence. You hear that? God made you just so that you would find your existence in him. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says that eternity was written in our hearts. In other words, if I could paraphrase that, you are hardwired in your human software to long after the God you were created for. Meaning, if you're not tapped into that original source, you will always be longing and always be trying to find the end of your longing in something else. Career, education, family, finances, sex, whatever it is. That's why Jesus would pray, this is eternal life, John chapter 17 verse 3. That you would know him. Speaking about not an intellectual, merely intellectual knowledge, but a deep relational knowledge. I pray that this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and know his Son whom he has sent. That's what you were made for. And his Son, Jesus Christ, comes after you to that end goal to the very end. I want you to ask yourself this question. Who does Jesus invite to the dinner table with him that night? Verse 14 and 17 through 18, the teacher says, Where, uh, where's my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, so on and so forth. Who's at the table with Jesus? 
his disciples. In other words, this is what baffles me. Jesus just got done saying, Mary did it right. Mary is the hero of the story. She gets it. She threw her alabaster jar of her life savings on my head. She totally gets it. Mary, the hero of the previous story, does not get invited to dinner with Jesus. Judas does. Jesus invites Judas to dinner. If I was Jesus, I would have been like, Judas, you're out. Back up. Mary, you're in. You know what this is a picture of? I'll I'll get to that answer in a second. Um, First, I have to tell you a story. For my anniversary years and years ago, I went to uh, New York with my wife. And while we were there, we took the subway to Brooklyn because there was a church there I had always wanted to go to. It was called the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And growing up, when I first got saved, I had been turned on to the Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, and their vision of prayer and, like, praying for the church and seeking God and all of that stuff. And so I was like, oh, babe, Brianna, we got to go to the Brooklyn Tabernacle and go to church there. I also wanted to go there because they had a legendary choir. And I was hoping they would sing the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. We go up into the mezzanine floor. It is packed out. I sit down. And it's a little bit after New Year's. And so the pastor there, Jim Cimbala, uh, tells everybody, you know, visitors to stand up. About 100 people stand up. We sit down. And then he says this. Hey, how many of you that are visiting have ever sung in a choir before? About 40, 50 people raise their hands. And then it's quiet. Everyone just sits there like, what are you, what are you doing? And Pastor Jim says this, how would you like to sing a couple songs with the choir today? Nobody says anything. They're like, what? This is a Grammy award-winning gospel choir. And he says, I'm serious. Come on down. People start rushing the stage to sing. It's incredible. I sit down because I have never sung in a choir before in my life. And so I'm like, oh, this is so happy for you, everybody. (laughs) So it's great. But then I just start, like, arguing with myself, like, persuading myself, like, oh, well, I I lead worship at church, like, whatever, like, how hard could this be, Uh, singing in a choir and stuff, and I'm just, like, playing it through my mind. I turn around and look at my wife, Brianna, and she's got a glimmer in her eye. That's all I needed. I bounce over the banister, I run down towards the stage, and I walk up with my chest puffed out, like, I'm going to handle this, this is going to be awesome. And I knew, I started getting the initial red flags when a young man next to me asked me this. He said, what are you? I was like, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a man. I'm a, hu- I'm a human being. I'm a human man. He's all, no, like, are you a, you know, alto or a whatever? He said some words I've never heard before in my life. And I'm all, I, I'm a man. I'm a human man. And he, he just says, go stand over there. So I stand right in the middle of the choir. There's about two, 150 people in the choir at this point, in, uh, including visitors. I'm standing up there. They start singing a song. And I recognize the song. I'm all, yes, thank you, Jesus. It's a song that we just sung last week at my church. This is going to be awesome. And I belt out. And then I start getting confident. I'm like, I sound good. Okay, I'm just going to sing a little bit louder so these guys can hear me. And then halfway through the song, I realize something. This is my second red flag. I realize everyone around me is moving. 
like the like choirs do. Like if you've ever been in a choir, which I haven't, they're doing this. They're like doing the step and they're clapping. See, I can't even do it. This is a struggle. They're doing this. And it's not just the choir. The whole church is doing these steps. 3,000 people, the building is shaking. Everyone in the building is doing these steps to the music. Except for one guy. <laughs> this guy. To make matters worse, everyone in the choir had like the most muted, gray, black, brown suits on. I had like, I had like a red plaid shirt on. Like, like that one. Like the one you're wearing, David. And I just stood out. I asked my wife, Brianna, a little bit after that, like, babe, could you tell I wasn't moving? And she was trying to be encouraging. She was like, you look like a pole holding its ground in the wind. <laughs> and so I, I was freaking out. And I started to try to regain composure. I'm like, okay, I got it. Okay, I'm learning the steps as we're going. And I finally get it down. And I realized that I stopped singing a long time ago. So I'm like, oh, no, okay. So I start singing, and I'm moving, and I get it. I finally get it after about a minute and a half, and I look up, and I'm moving in the opposite direction as the choir. I look like a broken pair of windshield wipers. Needless to say, after two songs, I was so embarrassed, so humiliated. You ever have one of those moments where you're just like, don't look at me, don't talk to me? I wanted to go out the side door, text my wife. I'm not coming back up onto, this, uh, onto the mezzanine. We're going to like Redeemer Presbyterian where they just stand up and sit down. I could do that. I could stand up, sit down. And as I'm walking down the stairs, this guy stands in front of me and stops me with his hand. And I'm like, oh, no. They called security. This is... <laughs> and I look up, and it's Pastor Jim Simbola. And he looks at me. He grabs my hand and his big old paws, he's a big old guy, and he's all, in his microphone, he's all, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for singing with us. Thanks for singing with us. I'm so glad you're here. In other words, I don't know if he was listening, but I, I completely messed that up. And Jim specifically singled me out to thank me for being there. In my world, this is called grace. And the Lord's Supper is a visual picture of the grace of God shown towards sinners. It's Jesus extending a piece of bread and his cup, signifying his body that was broken and his blood that was shed, saying to the former Judases, the struggling Judases, the mess-ups and the renegades, the recovering uh, legalists, and all the like in between. The person that rolled out of bed this morning reluctantly saying, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them at the dinner table, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Here's the truth. We're often more like Judas than we are like Jesus. Shoot. I'm more like Judas than I am like Mary sometimes. 
But here's the good news. Even to the very end, Jesus is constantly inviting you into his space. Apart from anything that you've done, apart from what you did last night, apart from what you're going to do tomorrow, he is constantly extending his hand to the worst people, to the Judases. Nothing you can do is greater than his love and grace. You might be doubting that, but I'm telling you, I'm here today. Drove five hours to tell some friends in Stockton that he can handle anything you throw at him today. You might feel deflated today, but Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 says that Jesus can fill you up. You might feel down this morning, but Colossians chapter 3 says that Jesus can raise you up. You might feel dejected today, but Jesus is inexpressible joy. You might feel weak, but Jesus makes you strong. You might be falling apart this morning, but Jesus is the one who can restore you. You might feel faithless this morning, but Jesus is faithful. When you don't know what to believe, Jesus is true. When you're about to give up, Jesus keeps your feet from stumbling. When you're passed over for promotion, Jesus still chooses you. When your spouse leaves you, Jesus says, I never will. When no one wants you around, Jesus says, follow me. Can I get an amen from somebody in this building? When you feel stupid, Jesus is your wisdom. When you feel unworthy, Jesus is your righteousness. When you feel dirty, Jesus is your sanctification. When you're thirsty, Jesus is rivers of living water pouring out of your innermost being. When you're hungry, Jesus is the bread of life. When you're out of your stinking mind, Jesus is the peace that surpasses the understanding of your mind. When you're discouraged, Jesus is your comfort. When your wallet is empty, Jesus is your shepherd you shall not want. When your career is falling apart, Jesus keeps your confidence together. Somebody help me preach this morning. When your health is failing, Jesus renews your strength. When your youth is fading, Jesus renews your inner being. When your heart is broken, Jesus dwells in your heart through faith. When you're a work in progress, Jesus will bring you to completion. When you feel like you can't make it, Jesus will present you blameless before God. When times are uncertain, Jesus is your assurance. When times are unstable, Jesus is your rock. When times are insecure, Jesus is your refuge. When you've lost your sense of what? Jesus is your reason. Is this a sermon for somebody, anybody? When you don't know where to go, Jesus is the way. When you can't find your way, Jesus is the light. When you don't know how to get there, Jesus is the door. When you don't know who to trust, Jesus is the truth. When you don't know what to do, Jesus says, learn from me. When you say, but I don't want to be hurt, Jesus says, I'm gentle at heart. When you say, but I'm tired, Lord, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. When you say, but I'm afraid, Jesus says, take courage. And when it feels like Everything is urgent and scary and dangerous and falling apart. Jesus can hold it together by the word of his power. What else you got? What else you got this morning? Jesus can handle it. And you might still be like Judas. You might still be holding on to a room and you're too afraid to let go of it. But in light of the grace of God in Christ, even though you might be a little more like Judas than you want to be, I want to invite you to respond like Mary this morning. Because Mary didn't need to be a good person to respond to Jesus. She just saw something. I'm getting paid in candy to play video games. (laughs) This is the best thing I've ever encountered in my life. She understood grace when she saw it, and she just made a little bit of room. 
And Jesus said to her, this is a beautiful thing. She has done what she could. Listen, what she could for you means that all you have to give to Jesus is your anxiety today, your worry, your difficulties, your fear, your anger, your addiction. I think sometimes there's a pressure on Christians to think that God, when we pray to him, like we should siphon up something that he wants to see in our heart, when all he's looking for is what's actually there. You don't need to fix yourself. Jesus has that down. All he asks for you to do is to be open and vulnerable and to give him what's actually there. How do you make room? Well, I think it starts by not hiding anymore behind those things that you've got a grip on. It could be career, it could be education, it could be money, it could be security, it could be esteem, it could be all of those things. The first way you make room is saying, Jesus is better. I'm going to open up that which is scary to me as an act of faith, and I'm going to bust open that alabaster jar at the feet of Jesus. I think I'm going to stop there. Um, and as we do, I don't know if uh, I don't know if Christine is supposed to come up or are you gonna? No, I don't. I don't know. Here, I, I want to give you two ways to respond. Some of you are Christians, and some of you aren't. Or maybe you're like, I, I don't know if I am. I go to church, you know. I want to give you two ways of responding. If you're a believer. I want you to take seriously the way that Jesus ended this. He ended it with a visual picture of the gospel through food and drink. So if you're a follower, I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you've been through this week. You have been invited to the table by an act of the grace of God as shown in Jesus Christ. So I want you to come freely. I want you to come confidently. I want you to hoist up that bread. I want you to wait as someone at the station pronounces the gospel over you. This is his body which was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you, and I want you to freely receive what has been already done for you at the foot of the cross. Some of you, you maybe you don't know if you believe, you don't know if you're a Christian. Communion, that Lord's Supper, that table, is for the disciples of Jesus. That's for the person who's made Christ, their Lord and Savior, for you, for you, the response is different. Don't just grab a cracker and eat and drink it. For you, it's to seriously consider if Jesus deserves every room. If you're willing to surrender all of that and make him the Lord of your life, and you know, the, the church here, the elders have made such an incredible way of responding. Just turn in your little uh, pamphlet to the section on prayer for those searching for the truth, and just read through that and, and encounter the Lord in that way. And as a believer, you can come to the table. But whatever you do, let's join together around the table at the foot of the cross, remembering again as we hit pause on the week prior and the week to come. We're in this place as a tremendous act of grace. We didn't make it. We've lost sight of what's truly important, and sometimes we're more like Judas than we are Jesus. And still, he extends his beloved hand to you. Praise God.